We are going to be studying out of Romans today, so if you'll turn with me to the passage that uh, Chris read for us, that's what we're going to be looking into today. Um, in fact, we're going to just uh, focus on two verses, and, uh, and they are verses that um, is absolutely stupendous statement that should alter your outlook of life for the rest of your life, should alter my outlook on life, and should be a supreme blessing to you, absolute supreme blessing. And to that end, let's just ask God to help us that this passage will have its impact upon us uh, that it should have. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you. We do praise you that you are our God and that you have done such good in our lives. We ask now, Father, that you will help us because you said something in your word that you want us to hear and you want us to believe and you want it to have a powerful transformation in our lives, Father, because you want to bless us. You are a generous and good and loving God and you, you want us to be blessed through you. And so we ask that you would please help us today. We pray, Father, that you would teach us more than what a human being can bring in speaking. We pray that you will teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will send your Holy Spirit down and you will open our eyes and open our hearts and help us to know you and hear you and, and to really embrace with everything that we've got what you have for us this morning. Bless us, we pray. Help us, we ask. We just need you. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A friend of mine was, uh, had kidney disease. And he was not, his body wasn't able to do what it needed to be done. And so uh, rather than spend um, four hours, three days a week tied to a bag, um, he had a kidney transplant. And the kidney that he was given was uh, given to him by his adult son. And so when his son gave his dad his kidney, um, the son uh, who was healthy and, and who was going on and living his life uh, went into the hospital, uh, was put under anesthesia, uh, had his body cut open, had a vital organ removed, went through all of the danger of that, the danger of infection, the danger of, it, of anesthesia, the danger of it going wrong, and, uh, and gave the kidney to his father. Um, you know, you can imagine if somebody loved you enough that they would give you one of their organs and then have to live the rest of their lives without uh, uh, the other organ. In fact, I know, some, I know a, a woman who lost a kidney and, uh, and then had one, and the doctors back then told her that she had to get rid of all the natural gas in her house, that she would only have to be able to use electricity because just uh, the, the possibility of breathing in any of the excess fumes and that, uh, anything that would put pressure on the one kidney that she had, she had to be careful. So this person gave a kidney, then willingly went through the challenges and the possible dangers that could come from life with one kidney. Now imagine if somebody gave you a kidney and then um, at, you both got better, you went out to, for coffee, 
and the person who you both went out, let's have coffee together. They went out and you had coffee. When it came time that the coffee time was over and you were going to leave, the person who received the kidney said, oh, no, I left the house without my wallet. Um, would you mind paying for my coffee? And the person who gave him the kidney would say, dude, I gave you a kidney. Certainly I'm going to pay for a coffee for you after all that I've done. I gave you the kidney that will process your coffee. Certainly I'm going to pay $1.50 or whatever for your coffee. Or, so if a person gives you something like that, then anything else that you might ask them to do is nothing. It's nothing compared to that. And what we're going to see in the verses that we're going to look at today is what's called an argument from greater to the lesser. If the greater is true, then the lesser must be true as well. And that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look this morning uh, just at two verses today, and that is verses 31 and 32. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to give you an outline of where we're going because the, the text is going to give us the outline. We are literally going to go through phrase, uh, phrase by phrase by phrase in this to try to understand what this is saying here. And, and I hope that by that time you will grasp what Paul is saying. Now you'll notice, for instance, just look at those two verses. Don't even read them, just look at them. You'll notice that there's questions. Uh, there's two questions in verse 31, and then verse 32 is also a question. Uh, these are also if-then clauses. If this is true, then that is true. You're going to see that in this as well. And you're going to ask, and what Paul is going to do is he's going to force us, as it were, to think through the implications of what he has said so far. So let's begin with, again, each phrase we're going to look at and such. First, Paul begins in verse 31, and he says this, What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Now, what does that mean, what shall we say? Uh, these things. What are these things? Well, when you see that, then you say, well, we, I need to look in the context to see what he's referring to. And it could be verse 30. Look at verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. So here are a people that God predestined, God called, God justified, and God will glorify. And Paul may be saying, what then shall we say to these things? These things are pretty amazing things. But, God, but Paul could be referring to more than just these, those things. He could be referring, if you look back in your Bible there, further and deeper into the chapter, sort of backwards. Look at verse 28. All things will work together for good to those who love God. God's going to work all things together for good in our lives. Or how about verse 26? That the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness and helps us to pray. Or how about 23, that we're eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies? Or how about verse 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Or how about verse uh, 8, 16? His spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Or how about uh, verse 15? The Holy Spirit has come in our life to enable us to pray, Abba, Father. Or maybe even further back, look at chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were sinners. Or look at verse 10. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Some say that Paul is going all the way back to chapter 3 when he started teaching about justification. Either way, Paul has come to a summary statement. And he says, after all of these great things that God has done for us, what shall we say? And then guess what he does? He answers that for us. Look at the next phrase. 
he says this. I'll answer that for you. Here's what we should say. And it's another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? So the, first, the next phrase is this. If God is for us. The word there that's used in, in the Greek language is to be favorably disposed towards somebody. Uh, we, we, we use the word for like that. If, who are you for? Like, like if you were going to watch a soccer match or a, a football game, hey, hey, who are you for? Who are you for? Or, or there's a boxing match, hey, who are you for? That means who do you want to win? Who are you favorably disposed toward? Who do you want to see do good here? Who are you for? We sometimes use the phrase friend or foe. Are you for me or are you against me? During the D-Day uh, invasion, uh, when we think of the D-Day invasion, we think of the, of the armies that, that, that are running up the beach while they're being shot at against these cliffs. But before that happened, there was tons of bombing. And before that happened, the night before the invasion, there were paratroopers who were flown over the battlefield into the, into the countryside of France that was filled with enemies. Uh, and they, were parach they parachuted down at night. They parachuted down at night. They have their machine guns. They're ready to fight the next day. And as soon as they parachute down at night, they cut these parachutes off, and they go running into the bushes and running into the trees, getting ready to attack whatever uh, to come the other way against the, uh, against the, the Nazi uh, forces. Now, when you're out there at night with a machine gun and people are running around and you're in enemy territory, you need to figure out who's your friend and who isn't your friend. It's pitch black. And so what they gave them is they gave them clickers, these little clickers, that when you clicked them, it sounded like a cricket. It sounded exactly like a cricket, which is a normal night sound. And so if you paratroop down at night, pitch black, you're not allowed to use any lights or the Germans would shoot you down. You get there, you cut your parachute off, and you go underneath a, a haystack or you go into the woods here, and you hear somebody approaching. Is it, an, is it a German soldier or is it an ally? What you do is you would just click your little cricket. And that would be, to num somebody who didn't expect it, they would just think that it was a cricket. But if, if all of a sudden that person stopped, and then you heard a cricket call you back, you knew that that person was for you and not against you. He was your friend and not your foe. And this is what this is being said here. Paul is saying this in verse 31. If God is for us, if God is on our side, if God is favorably disposed toward us, if God is working for us, then he says this, who could be against us? If God's on your side, who can be against you? You know, every once in a while, I'll say in high school, in high school basketball, for instance, high school basketball, every once in a while comes along an athlete that is so incredibly good. Now, they're not allowed to do this anymore, but they used to be allowed to do this. They would go directly from high school senior to the NBA, okay? Kobe Bryant did that, and LeBron James did that. They don't go to college. They don't play in college. They're so good that they go immediately from high school to the NBA. Now, could you imagine in high school having somebody that skilled on your team? You're going to pretty much beat everybody, okay? Now, if you can imagine not only having one person like that, but if you can imagine having two people like that, or even three people like that, you would literally blow away every competition. There would never, ever be a, a basketball game where you probably didn't win like by 20, 120 to 20. 
That would probably be, in other words, it'd be like, bring them on, bring them on, bring them on. I don't care what private school they are. I don't care how many scholarships they give. Bring them on. We got three of these dudes who are going to leave here and go right to the NBA. If the, these guys are for us, who could possibly be against us? That's the, the thinking that Paul has here. Or imagine if you're a country and you have a nuclear power, you have a nuclear bomb. You have the ability to have a nuclear bomb. Many of us, when we think of nuclear bombs, we think right now of the United States and Russia. But you need to realize that before there was any nuclear bombs, during World War II, the big concern was that Hitler would get a nuclear bomb and none of us and nobody else would have one. And if Hitler got a hold of a nuclear bomb, he would literally have conquered the entire world. Because all you'd have to say is, United States, you're not fighting against me. And we say, yeah, we are, yeah, we are. And he says, fine, I'll just detonate a nuclear bomb in Washington, D.C. It would be over. The war would have been over. And that's because if you have that kind of power, your enemies can't stand up against you. And that's what Paul is saying. God is for us. God is on our side. God is on our team. God is our nuclear power. God is for us, and he's on our side. Nobody really counts then. There is no real enemy. There's no team that can even stand against us. Now, we do have enemies. We have very powerful enemies. We certainly have powerful enemies. We have a super powerful, spiritual, invisible, evil, totally evil enemy called the devil who's smart who's intelligent, who's been around for ages and ages and ages, even before the world was created. And he hates us. And he's a powerful enemy. And then there's his legions, the principalities and powers, the Bible says, those evil dark forces that are out there, the, e the hosts of evil uh, uh, darkness, as Paul calls them. Then there's the world. The seducing world that hates us and, and that hates Christians and that tempts us and persecutes us if we don't go along with us and cancels us. And then there's our remaining sin within us. We have this as well. We do have powerful enemies. But notice what Paul is saying. He's saying if God is for us, even these enemies are nothing compared to him. Nothing compared to his power. Haldane, in his commentary on Romans, wrote this. He says, if God with all his glorious attributes, if God, with all of his glorious attributes, were engaged for their defense, they might look out, they might look without dismay upon an opposing universe. Listen to that again. If God, with all of his glorious attributes, were engaged for their defense, they might look without dismay upon an opposing universe. Bring it on. Devil, you're nothing. Demons, you're nothing. World, you're nothing. Remaining sin, you're nothing. God, God is on our side. If God is for us, who could be against us? Then Paul goes on to say this, another question. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son. In the original language, what they would do in Greek is they would, they would it's called fronting. They would put things up front that they wanted to emphasize. Listen to how, the literal translation of this. It's this. Who even his own son did not spare. That's how Paul wrote it. Who even his own son did not spare. What's, isn't that an interesting word, by the way? Look at that word there, spare. He didn't spare his own son. What does that mean, spare? 
Well, the word means to shield or to protect. To shield or protect from harm. To shield or protect from harm or discomfort or loss. And this is what parents do. This is what parents do. Parents shield and protect and pull back their children from harm. They, they may even cover for them so that children don't have harm. This is, we just do it naturally. We get, whoa, whoa, get away from there. Get away from there. We don't even think of it. We, we try to cover them. We try to protect them. I even know some parents who, who um, would, their children, and think of parents. We've, we've all run into this at times, parents, where your child calls you up from school and says, Dad. Remember that project I was working on yesterday? Oh, yeah, son, yeah, I remember that. You did a good job. We were working together. Guess what? I left it at home, and it's due on third period. You know where this phone conversation is going, right? It's like, so? Okay, son, that's a nice piece of information. Bye. No, no, Dad, don't hang up. <laughs> okay. In other words, can you bring it to school for me? Can you cover for me? Can you, can you shield me? And we do. We, we spare them. We spare them from, from that kind of thing. And that's what this, verse, this word means, to spare. Now, notice, notice where we're at right now. I'm using an illustration of parents and children. And that perfectly matches this because look at the verse. This is a verse about father and son. He did not spare his own son. Did not spare his own son. What I'm trying to get at is, is that this idea of sparing his own son, of us sparing our children, this is something that is deep-seated, instinctive in parents. It's something that, that just naturally flows out of parents. You see, this concept of the parent, of father and son that is here in this text, this context is very important to grasp. When a child is born, when a child is brought into your life, your heart is immediately wed to that being. Your you're immediately wed to that child, and you're, you're, they become your delight. They become your joy. You, 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 they might be around for less than a week, and you, you, you can't even envision what life was like before that. They're so special to you. They're so precious to you. They're so important in your life. And it alters everything. It alters life. And one of the things that happens is, is that you have this instinctive, deep, primitive, primeval desire to protect this little child, to protect them. And, and that, and that is, runs so deep within you that you, you won't even care about your own harm or, or your own discomfort or your own danger in order that that child would be protected. That is just knit in each one of us as parents. As soon as we hear that our child is in danger, as soon as we hear that there's a threat against them, as soon as we hear that something may go wrong with them, we want to leap in and stop it. We want to help them. It's just we, we, we see them reaching out for a hot, a hot pan or a hot pot. We immediately pull them back in. We see them walking a little close to the edge of the deck, and we immediately pull, push them away or, or, or move them in. It's just instinctive. We, just, we, just have, we may spill stuff all over ourselves to get to them, to stop them. It's just this instinctive thing. And if we choose not to do it, wait, let me, let me stop. When we can't do it, when we can't spare them, it's hard. It eats us up inside. It's gut-wrenching. I had a child recently who was turned down for a job, and it was an act, it was an absolute act of injustice. It was an absolute act of pure sexism. She was turned down because she was a woman. And it was gut-wrenching. 
I wanted to call that person up. I wanted to ring them out. I wanted to go and comfort her. I wanted to protect her. It was gut-wrenching to watch that injustice. Gut-wrenching. And if a parent finds that a child is in a car accident or a child has cancer, the parent can't do anything about it, but they do anything to fix it. I'd do anything to be in that hospital bed and not them. I'd do anything if that cancer could be removed out of them and just plunged in me, anything to protect them. That's the feeling that a parent has. And if a parent chooses not to spare them, they only will do it for a greater good. Let's go back to our simple, simple illustration of the child who forgot the project at home. If the parent says, son, I've done this for you every year since you were in kindergarten. You are now in 12th grade. No, you need to grow up. You need to learn. No, get an F. Boom. Say, so what parent would do that? Well, maybe some kids here might know one that would do that. <laughs> because for the better good, you want them to grow. You don't cover for your kid. You don't hel helicopter over them because you want them to endure maybe some consequences so that they'll learn. There will be a greater good. Now hold that thought that we will choose not to spare for a greater good. Hold that thought because we're going to return to that. But let's go back to the text. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. Again, what interesting language, isn't this here? Sparing and delivering him up. The word here, delivered up, means this. To give over, to hand over into the hands of others. To give up, just to hand over into the hands of others. But in this context, it's giving up and handing people, someone over, into the hands of people who will then have ultimate and absolute power over them. That's what the word means here. And it's used very often, this word is used very often in the Gospels. We've actually run into it in Matthew. When Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going into Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And he's, they're going to hand him over to the Romans and he's going to be executed. That, this is the same word that's being used, to hand a child over. And so Judas, for instance, handed Jesus over to the Jews. And Jesus is then bound and he's taken. And then the Jews hand him over to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin has a trial. And then they hand him over to Pilate. And then Pilate hands him over to the executioners. And the executioners take him to be executed. And that's the word that is being used here. Now, dear friends, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about this for a second. Because I think that what is being said here, we read our Bibles way too quickly and we don't meditate on it. I want you to understand the horror of what is actually being said here, okay? I want you to understand the horror that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And quite frankly, dear friends, at this point, we are about to step into some hallowed ground. And that hallowed ground is this. It is the ground, and I want to be careful here because there are some people in this church and some people present here who have undergone this experience. And that is the experience of the loss of a child. We are, we are entering it. I never, I never do this lightly because I don't want to bring up anybody's pain. But this is hallowed ground here. You see, God revealed himself to us by sending his son. And God created us to have children. And so that by having children, we would understand this bond of what he did for us in giving us his son. 
And we're entering into some hallowed ground here, so, but I want you to listen to me very carefully. Think of what it would be like to have one of your children arrested and handcuffed and put in a police car. That experience. So imagine you're there, your parents, you're watching this happen. The police have come, they've arrested your child, and they're, 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 they're grabbing him. They're, they're slamming his face against him. They're putting handcuffs on him, and they're putting in a police car. That alone, even if, even if they're acting justly, and they're fulfilling the acts of that alone is, you know, like me and you probably as parents, there might be two arrests that day. What are you doing? Get your hands off my kid. Don't treat my kid like that. What is going on here? I demand to see a lawyer. You get off my property. That'd be the kind of thing that a parent would want to do because you want to spare your own son. But dear friends, listen to this. What if your son was being arrested and taken into the power of people who are not going to follow the dictates of law, but we're going to follow the dictates of envy and hatred See, that's what black families had to endure in the Jim Crow South when their children were arrested. Would they be beat up? They're going in the hands of white police officers. Would they be beat up? Would they be lynched? What is going to happen? That's what happens when people, Christians in Myanmar and China, are being arrested now and watching their children arrested into a government that hates them. That's what's happening to Muslims right now in China, where they're being arrested and sent to these concentration camps and taken under the power of people who hate them and are going to abuse them. And that's what happened to Jesus. God gave his son over into the hands of the Jewish Sanhedrin and of the Romans who had no interest but hatred and envy against his son. But then think about this. Think, put yourself in the place of a parent. What if you were a parent and you were sitting in a courtroom and you were watching the trial and your son was the one who was, under, who was being tried and you were watching a trial take place? What would you want to do? You'd want to do anything to stop this, anything not to make this happen. But imagine if that trial, again, was not one that was following the course of law and the proper extent of law. That was a trial that was an unjust trial. And people, the judge was unjust. And the people were lying. And your child was being, was being uh, uh, convicted. And your child was convicted, and all you could do was sit and watch while they were lying against your child, and your child is convicted and found guilty of a crime that you know he didn't do, and then was sentenced to death. See, God gave his son over to this. God did not spare his son from this. Whereas you and I would just protest, we would yell, we would scream, we'd be arrested in the courtroom. What is the matter with you people? He is innocent. No! God went through all of that. But then, dear friends, let's move on. You know, some parents, oh, this would be horrible. Some parents have watched their children be executed. If your child was convicted of a crime, and maybe they did it, if your child was convicted of a crime and was going to be taken by the prison system and taken to the place of execution, and being executed, you as a parent would want to be there to support them. But it would be the most horrible, horrible day imaginable. Your beloved child 
is stretched out on that gurney. Your beloved child has that fear of death before them, knowing the exact moment has come when they were going to die. Your beloved child, you watch as the needle is put in their arm. Your beloved child is there as you see the drugs poured in. Your blood. That would just, that would break. You would do anything to stop that. God did not spare his own son. But dear friends, what if, and this has happened, what if you had to go to watch the execution of your child when you knew that child was innocent? The United States government and other governments have executed perfectly innocent people. It has happened. It's not all the time. It's not anything, but it has happened. Put yourself in the place of the parent. If you had to go that day, it's one thing if you had to go that day and watch your child executed, who he was Timothy McVeigh and he killed 160 people. That would be horrible as it is. There's another thing that you would have to go and everything raging in you of the injustice of this, that your son is innocent. He was with you the night that person was murdered. He is being railroaded by people who hate him. Dear friends, that's what God gave us. Jesus was innocent and he died for us. But let's take it one step further. What if you had to insert the needle to your innocent son for him to die? What if you had to flip the switch to electrocute your innocent son? What if you had to pull the wire so that the trapdoor would drop so that he would go down and hang and snap his neck? to your innocent son. This is what's being said here. Enter into this passage. Look at verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for, himself, for us all. Now, we've been using ourselves as illustrations, but now let's take the horror of that moment, the horror of not sparing your own son, the, how that goes against all parental instinct that we have as image bearers of God, the horror of that, and now let's add infinity to that, an infinite love, an infinite love, not, not, not a frail love like I have for my children, an infinite love, a never-ending love, a boundless love, a love that has no boundaries at all. An infinite love of an infinite God who loves his son infinitely and has loved him from all of eternity and who loves an infinitely lovely son, an infinitely glorious and beautiful son. And here is this father not sparing his son, but giving him up, delivering him over. And this son in his infinite love for his father being a part of the plan, planning that, agreeing to that. And this wonderful, beautiful relationship between father and son, infinite son loving, infinite father, infinite father loving, infinite son in this deep, amazing, marvelous, matchless, unending, amazing love, incomprehensible love. Imagine that God has done this. He did not spare his own son. He delivered him up for us all. Why? Why? 
Remember I said that if you choose to not spare your own son, you choose to not spare your own son for a greater good. Why did God do this? Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God order this? And the answer, there are many answers to that question. One of the answers that is given is for the, and we sang it right here, for the praise of his glory and grace and mercy, to reveal the glory and greatness of who he is. This was the amazing revelation of his glory and greatness. Ephesians 1 teaches that. But that's not what this verse is focusing on. Why did God not spare his son in these verses? Why did God not deliver his son? Why did God not say no? Why did God go against all of those? Why did God allow himself all of those horrible, horrible realities to be at work in his own fatherly heart as he delivered his own son up, gave his own son up to such wicked people who treated him in such wicked ways and want to stop it but not stop it and want to intervene and not intervene and want to bring justice and allow injustice? Why? What possible good could God have done this for? And dear friends, the answer in this verse is you. You. Me. Us. Look at the verse. Look at verse 31 and verse 32 and look at how many times us is used. If God is for us, who can be against us, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up, for us all, how shall not with him give us all things? Dear friends, the focus of these two verses is us, is us. Father and son decided that they would go through this horrible reality for us because they loved us, because God is for us, because God is favorably disposed to us. To us. Octavia Winslow said this. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. For love. God did this. Did not spare his own son. But delivered him up for us all. For love. For love of us. Then Paul concludes by saying this. Look at the end of verse 32. One last question then. How shall he not with him, his son, also freely give us all things? Each, each word precious. How? How? Douglas Moon in his commentary writes, Paul suggests how inconceivable it would be for this clause to remain unfulfilled. How could it possibly be? How, he says, how shall he not with Christ? He's given us Christ. He gave his son over. He delivered him into these wicked powers. He didn't spare him. He didn't stop. How, after giving us him, Will he not, along with him, give us all things? Now, notice how your Bible says, freely give, freely give. And you know what? That's actually not, it's two words in English, freely give. Guess what? It's one word in Greek. And you know what the word is? It's the Greek verb, grace. 
Grace is a verb. Grace is doing. How is he not graciously, freely, lovingly, generously, abundantly pouring out? Grace, you know that grace is. Grace is love. Grace is a, a special love. We have, to add, we have to add adjectives to love to describe grace. It's amazing love. It's, 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 it's love that we don't deserve. It's, it's love that we actually deserve the opposite. It's, it's an unprecedented love that God just pours out. It's God looking upon unlovable, wretched people and just bursting in his heart of love for them and wanting to do good for them and wanting to provide for them and wanting to save for them and wanting to freely give. And this is, what the, this is the logic of what Paul is saying. Here. He gave us his son. He saw his son through arrest and through terrible trial and through execution and through all of that humiliation. He delivered him. He gave him. He gave us. He gave us his son. Now, after he's done all of that, after is it where he's given us the kidney, he's going to pay for the coffee. He's going to give us all things now. He's going to freely give, freely give, freely give, freely give, freely give. Why? Because this is who God is. This is what he does. There is no greater expression of love that God could possibly give than to give his son. Do you honestly think now he's going to withhold, start withholding things? Start getting small-hearted? Start getting selfish? Start getting negligent? No. So let's apply this to ourselves, dear friends. What do we do with this fact? What do we do with these two little brief sentences that have been so well tightly argued out. What do we do with this? Or we could ask it this way. What should this do to us? And I'll tell you, I will give you one line of application right here. Listen to me very carefully because each word is important. This truth that we have just investigated, this truth should dominate, dominate, our entire outlook on the future. This truth should dominate our entire outlook on the future. Now notice, by the way, you might not pick this up in English very well, but it's, this, is, uh, this is it. This, this, these two verses are actually future-looking, okay? Look at verse 31. What shall we then say, what shall we say to these things? That, that's given in the future tense. What shall we say to these things? And then look at the end of verse 32. How shall he not with him? This is freely give us. That's in the future tense. How shall he not freely give us these things? These verses look to the future. And what this should do is this should dominate our, the entire, our entire outlook on the future. What do I mean by dominate? I mean by dominate, like bully, push out, get out of the way, elbow out of the way. This verse should elbow out of the way Worries, fears, anxieties, fretful planning. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also graciously give us all things? That should dominate our outlook in the future. What is your future going to be like? Well, it should be dominated by this thought. God is for me. Who could be against me? God who gave me Jesus and went through all of that fatherly pain for me, he's going to take care of me. This should dominate your outlook for the next hour. This should dominate our outlook for tomorrow. 
This should dominate our outlook on next week. What is next week going to bring for you? It should be, the dominant outlook should be, I don't know what it's going to bring, but I know this, God's going to freely give me all kinds of stuff that I need because he freely, freely gave me Jesus. This should dominate your view of 2022. This should dominate your view of 2023. This should dominate your view for the rest of your life and for all of eternity that God is going to take care of me. It is absolutely impossible. It is absolutely incomprehensible that after giving you his beloved son, that he's not going to give you thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 lesser things. Is God going to be with you? From now on, yes, he's going to give you that. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. God's going to be with you. No matter where you go, who you are, who you're with, God's going to be with you. He promises that. That's nothing. He gave you his son. Certainly he'll be with you. If, if, if I were to give my little granddaughter Penny my kidney, and we're walking down the road, and Penny gets a little scared and says, Grandpa, hold my hand. I'm going to give her my hand. I gave her my kidney. The same thing. God is going to be with us. He's not going to forsake you now. He gave you his son. Is God going to love you through the future? Absolutely. Do you think this love is going to dry up now? Is God going to guide you? Yes. He'll guide you. Is God going to strengthen you? Yes. He'll strengthen you. Is God going to work all things together for good in your life? Yes. Certainly he gave you a son. He watched his son get executed. Is God going to lead you into incomprehensible glory one day? Yes. Even your sufferings. You may suffer. You probably will suffer. There will be trials. But dear friends, those trials and that suffering will never come. Unless first God, let me just bear with me, my language here, that God sat down with a calculator and in his infinite mind calculated that this suffering is the only possible way to produce some of the good that he wants to produce in your life. It will never happen unless God says this is going to be good. Is this loving? Is this, is this good? Because I'm so invested in this dear one. Is that I gave my son to this dear one. This suffering, this sickness, this disease, this disappointment, this, this, this thing. It only has to be for good or I won't allow it to happen to them. I gave my son for them. And during, through your suffering, God will be with you. God will hold your hand. God will strengthen your faith. Dear friends, this should dominate the entire outlook of our future. Secondly, by way of application, we should never fear anything or anyone ever again. Nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? I have some granddaughters who are deathly afraid of bees, spiders, anything flying. Deathly afraid of them. They're just screaming afraid of them. But thankfully, they have a super human powerful, fearless, brave, almighty grandfather. And when they're with him, ah, bee, don't worry about a bee. I ain't afraid of no bees. A spider, dead, forget it. 
And so we sit on the porch in the summertime, and I'm reading, and the, a bee goes, a bee, they're all over my chest, book flying, a bee, a bee, I said, carols, the bee's dead, don't worry about it, it's gone. So we start reading again, reading again, a spider, a spider, it's gone, girls, stop worrying about it, grandpa's here, I'll take care of all that. And then they start to calm down a little bit. A bug, a bug. It's an ant. <laughs> but they always retain a level of nervousness. Dear friends, I'd like to, I like, when I'm reading, I'd like to say to them, would you just stop it? Never have to worry about another bug again. Dear friends, I want to say to you and I, let's stop it. God has our, he has us. We have nothing to fear. We don't need to flinch. We need to be brave. Dear ones, I, I, I want you to picture with the eyes of faith this. I want you to look, look up through the eyes of faith now. Look through this roof, and then you see the sky. Look through the sky through the eyes of faith. There's the universe. Look through the universe, and over and above and through and in and overarching, all of that is God. He holds it all in his hand. It's God. Think of God in all of his infinite mysterious power and grace and goodness. Not only, not only is, it, is it overarching us and protecting us and watching over us, but in him we live and move and have our being. He's everywhere. He's here. And he loves us. And he's all-powerful. And he's for us. And he gave his son for us. And he's got us back. He's watching over us. He's going to take care of us. And in his infinite power and in his infinite love, he is going to be with us every single step of the way. And you know what we need to do, dear friends? We need to trust him. We need to trust him. He doesn't have to prove ever again what he has done because he gave us his son. We need to trust him. And my heart's desire for you and for me is that we would simply believe the things that God said are true. And we would be the calmest, most assured, bravest, most peaceful, most carefree people on the face of the earth because we are the children of God. Dear ones, make that your goal. And if you are not a child of God, he invites you to come to him and he will adopt you today. Trust him. Come to Christ. And you will be, we're going to look at this tonight in Grace School. It's an amazing verse. You will be hidden with Christ in God. God will take you into his heart. And you will be one of those ones that can go through life saying, if he's for me, who could possibly be against me? Let's pray together. Father, there's literally no words to say to you right now, but you know what's in our heart. You know our, our, just, our sense of overwhelmed gratitude. You know our sense of feeling very blessed. You know that some of us are thinking, why me? Wow. But all of us are thinking, praise God. Praise you, Father. Thank you. Thank you that you treat us like this. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've been so good to us. We just are so thankful that you're for us.
and how you've proved it. Thank you. Thank you that we can wake up tomorrow and say, God is for me and defy all of our enemies. Thank you that we can wake up tomorrow and say, God is for me. He didn't spare his own son. He's going to give me everything I need. I can rest. Instead of worrying, I can sing. Instead of fretting, I can praise. Instead of anxiety, I can whistle with joy. Father, thank you. Help us, we pray, to simply believe what you said is true. Help our unbelief, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.